на трибунах олеют знамена, Облака под небесни плывут. На зеленом ковре стадиона разноцветные майки цветут. Hello and welcome back to the Russian Football News Podcast. It's just myself and David this week as we get together to discuss the midweek European games, cover last weekend's RPL and go more in depth on the recent Russia squad as Valery Karpin has trimmed down his 41-man squad now to a 30-man squad. But first we will explore the European matches and we're going to do it a little bit differently this week. Instead of 15 to 20 minutes on each game, we're going to more concisely approach the matches. Uh, partly because it was a little bit of a disappointing one in terms of results. Um, all three faced hard away games. First of all, Zenit travelled to Turin and they lost 4-2 at Juventus, largely thanks to a Paolo Dybala masterclass and some potentially potentially um, suspect refereeing, which we will get into later on. Uh Lokomotiv also faced a hard away game against the group leaders Galatasaray and earned a 1-1 draw. Um, it wasn't the greatest of performances from Loco, but it was the second half Francois Camano goal that levelled it up. And Spartak travelled to England to face Leicester City in a far more convincing and better performance than what happened two weeks ago. Um, Rui Vittoria took Nikola Raskasov out the out the line light out of the firing line and went ultra defensive as Spartak earned well earned the draw from that excellent performance. But David, if we do start with Zenit very quickly, it seems that in my opinion, despite Zenit obviously scoring two goals in Turin, which is no mean feat, I think this is just largely a game where Juve and in particular Paolo Dybala's class really shone on the on the night, and I don't think that that contentious penalty decision would have really made much of an impact had it not have gone the way that it did. Um, it's a tough one. Obviously, the the home fixture was very good from Zenit's perspective. They they really fought um, well, and were I thought unlucky to come away with. With no points, they did, they deserved a point in the in the fixture in Saint Petersburg. But this one, the from what I've seen, I, I couldn't see the game unfortunately, but I've seen seen the highlights and the, the the key point I think probably is the penalty because that leads on to something else later. Um, obviously, it's it's a very soft penalty. I remember seeing it on Twitter off, like later that evening. Oh, that's that's soft. And then I hadn't even heard about at that point the contention around the apparently there was some encroachment or something mm-hmm. uh, i haven't even seen the clip of that uh i assume the penalty was retaken after that uh, yeah so it was a soft penalty but then for juventus's fourth goal so that the game was obviously at that point three went to what three one for the penalty or was it to take the off? penalty made it two one two one uh what I think was the fourth goal, um, I'm pretty sure it was Krugavoy. Uh, Juve countered, and the ball gets switched across towards the Zenit left. And Krugavoy either slips or tries inexplicably to chest it and slips while doing so. Um, and yeah. basically just let 
the Juve player free uh, on goal. And I just think that they'd obviously, Zenit were pushing hard for that, and that goal probably could have been avoided had the gap not been quite as um, big. You know, if that game, because the penalty was, uh, was the penalty before half time? No. It's in the second half, early second half. It was early second half. It's the early second half is a is a killer blow because you want to try and keep that game at, you know, at level pegging as long as you can in the early second half. Um, stop it getting away from you, but you know, conceding early, letting Juve take control again, just mm. uh, basically ruins any game plan that you presumably had been given at half time. Uh, so yeah, disappointing, but you know it's a it's an incredibly tough place to go, and. Uh, you know, no, no goals that I thought were unbelievably good. Um, you know, the the, core, the first one was just you know, he just picked up a loose corner, and then yeah, it was you know Zenit's goals weren't exactly the best themselves, especially the first one, incredibly fortunate. But uh, <laughs> you know, they they gave it their best shot. Two goals in Shirin is nothing to be to be ashamed of, um, and they you know they potentially got a little unlucky. Um, but we we said it for a little while. Um, I think I said it last time I was on. You know, that for Zenit it's third or nothing at this point. You know, Malmo lost again, so all all Zenit have got to do is beat Malmo away, or just not lose to Malmo, even draw against Malmo, and they'll be they'll be sorted. They'll be through. Yeah. So that that's the big focus. Go to Sweden and don't lose is what they need to be doing. So um, you know, any other games at this point are are a bonus. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. I think what I meant, I mean, obviously the referee, the penalty did have a big bearing on the matters. At the time, Zenit had a, like you said, fortunate goal, but they were well worth the the then point at half-time, going into half-time. I thought they performed better in the first half. Unfortunately, that did change the game. But what I mean by, I don't think it would have had much of a bearing, is regardless of if that's given or not, the quality that Juve have up top with Chiesa and Dybala in particular in the form that they were in. Um, Chiesa, goal and assist. Dybala, two goals and an assist. I'm not quite sure what... I I think it was just an inevitability that Juve were going to come and win the match just with the way that it was going. And then Zenit only really got in the ascendancy whatsoever late on um, when Juve just sat back 4-1 up and just kind of took the foot off the gas entirely. But I don't think that by any means this was like last season. Last season, it was a meek performance from Zenit in the Champions League in general. Even though they've conceded four goals and they've lost away to Juve, by no means did they just concede and just stand down. It's a performance that you can be proud of the team for, especially playing a team with the quality that Juve have got, even though they've not been in the greatest of form this season, especially uh, in terms of the domestic form, domestically they're struggling quite a bit, but there is a gulf and like I say, it's unfortunate that the game turned on that penalty because it was never a pen, Claudinho was robbed, it was the lightest of touch if anything. The retake was, in my opinion, fine Um, there were players encroaching by the letter of the law a retake is the correct thing to do the only problem with that is the inconsistency of refereeing. When you see, I mean, I think even, was it Zenit English Twitter even retweeted something along the lines where 
in the very same night in a different game, there was a retake, a penalty taken, and the players were encroaching and it wasn't retaken. So it's just, I can see why they're grieved from the inconsistencies. But UFA's class was, was just far beyond on the night. And I say UFA, it was, it was Pablo Dybala, sure. He was absolutely incredible. Um, assisted assisted the last goal for Morata, which was a really nice move. So I, it's it's good to see Zenit performing better in what is a very tough group um, with the pressure off because look, third is what you would expect them to do in this group. You, it's pretty cruel uh, to have the champions of Europe and Juve both in the same one. But if we do move on to the Europa League, um, Loco, again, with the one got a 1-1 draw away to Galatasaray in isolation. Arguably not the not the greatest, not the worst result. Um, Konstantin Maradashvili got the assist on Francois Kamano's goal with a really nice cross. I think Maradashvili was probably Loco's best player on the night in general. Um, with a really a real accomplished performance in midfield, especially when Alexis Becker-Bakar alongside him did struggle and was um, largely anonymous compared to Maradashvili's influence upon the game. Um, Loco again were... It was it was actually quite a quite a narrow match this one, but Loco I think were had showed more quality on the ball for Galatasaray only had one shot on target and I mean they scored because Guilherme is in goal, but it was so it was uh, for Sofian Faguli, but it's it's again it, every time I see Loco play this year it's it just feels like a missed opportunity. It's that home form losing to Galatasaray at home uh, in the earlier on in the competition was and then the draw with Marseille it, it's just in isolation getting the point away in Istanbul is no mean feat it's a horrible place to go it was a decent-ish performance from some of the players but I, th- I just feel I don't know about you David but I just feel every time I see local play in Europe this season I'm just underwhelmed and I would, I'm expecting more I'm expecting some of the bigger players to step up um, before passing on to yourself it's Wise to mention that uh, Tino Andorin, uh, on loan from Chelsea, is actually returned to his parent club with an injury. And even though Loco have a deal in place to potentially sign Andorin for just under €20 million, Euros, can't really imagine that's going to go ahead with his kind of stop-start form, lack of real impact, and now return due to injury. But David, what do you think about Loco's... European performances more in general as well as just on Wednesday, uh, Thursday night? Yeah, it's been a real disappointment, especially after last year. Um, you know, last season they were against the big teams. You know, obviously they, they had an incredibly difficult group with uh, Bayern Munich, wasn't it? Atletico Madrid and uh, was it Leipzig or Salzburg? Salzburg, wasn't it? Salzburg, yeah. Team. So you have three very difficult teams. Uh, and they put on a really good performance, set performances. Obviously, they still came last, but they didn't come last embarrassingly. Uh, but, you know, the worst performance was arguably the, the second Salzburg game, as I recall. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the two four, the games against the big boys, they, they really knuckled down and defended really well, scored on counter-attacks, um, and you know, could go away with some pride, even though they lost, uh, I think, a couple of those games very narrowly. Um, 
you know, they, they still put in a good effort. But this year, you know, when I think of the Lazio away game, it was dreadful. You know, Marseille dominated them in Moscow and, you know, were like were lucky to get their equaliser through Andorin. Uh, and then Galatasaray, uh, last time out uh, again in Moscow, it was such a flat performance. Like there was just nothing for you know, going on for them up, up top. You know, I know they've been suffering with injuries of late, and you know, Smolov hasn't been in the squad recently. Uh, he was only on the bench this this week, um, but their managerial changes have just sort of left them in this tactical limbo where. They're sort of just on the pitch, but they seem to have no real plan. Um, but, you know, I can't just put that on that because obviously they started with Nikolic and things weren't going well with Nikolic and we, we talked about you know, their huge squad changes and things like that, all the all the stuff that's been going on there, the behind-the-scenes drama. It's uh, It's been an unsettled season in Otoko for sure. Um but the performance in Europe in, in far less respectable than, than last season, which is a surprise because at the start of the year, they were the team who I thought had the best chance of of doing well. You know, based on the evidence that we, we had from last year, they were my pick to be, quote-unquote, the best performing Russian team. And mm-hmm. uh, they, they've arguably been the worst. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Especially, like you say, it's... One of the main barometers you get from these European sides who play year in, year out is the comparisons to the year prior, whether or not the team as a unit have made strides forwards. It, it's obviously a little bit more difficult with Lokomotiv because they had quite a upheaval in the summer. But when we discuss Zenit and their step forwards, where it's, it's largely the same core, it's a manager who's learning his trade at this level. It's a team that's been improved upon with this core of Brazilians who are really running in their stride both domestically and in Europe and kicking the team on hopefully to the next level. Comparatively, it's it's not getting it's it's not huge progress, but it's just slowly but surely getting better every year for Zenit under Semak in Europe, well, from last year anyway. And then local because, like you said, Dave, because of the upheaval off the pitch. It's kind of just been a little bit of a reset for them. Losing big players, experienced players who were influential characters in the dressing room, even if not as influential on the pitch anymore. Um, so it's been just very stagnant, I think is, a, is a, probably a good word for it. Some good performances in there, the odd little light, uh, sort of light at the end of the tunnel, but largely it's more of the same of a team who usually defend fine, but offer very little going forwards and are nowhere near, are far too profligate to make any impact against a stronger, sterner, meaner defence. But we do now move on to the last European game, and that is, of course, Spartak's 1-1 draw with Leicester. Uh, Just to quickly go through some of the stats, um, Leicester had 77% possession, completed 811 passes, 90% of these were accurate, yet only 57 long balls, which is the same as Spartak, who completed that, like I said, that 57 long balls from only 245 attempted passes. They had one shot on target, Spartak all game, from 23% possession. So it's just to quickly summarise, that is obvious of what 
Rui Vittoria's approach was during this game. It was to pack the defence, go along, over the top, use Promes's pace and Sobolev's height and target the man, but ability back to goal to try and disrupt Leicester's defence uh, and just to keep it compact and not suffer the ignominy of the 7-1 and the 4-3 defeats of, of recent times. Uh, the He made a few changes. My, um, Nikolai Raskazov, obviously, from who was heavily embarrassed after the last few games, was not in the team. He was at fault for arguably all four of Leicester's goals in the, in the reverse for egg. And in particular, Alexander Selikov, Sanya Selikov, uh, returned in goal, and Misha Ignatov in attacking midfield. Now, Sanya Selikov is going through a little bit of a potential resurgence at the minute. He had an excellent game, um, has started the last two since uh, Maximenka was dropped after the 7-1 defeat. Uh, almost kept a clean sheet in the last match against Rostov, only to be denied that by a 95th minute goal from Daniel Glebov to make it 1-1. Performed okay in that game, wasn't necessarily that busy. Uh, it was one of those where Spartak generally dominate possession, dominate territory. And then Rostov, I think, only had sh- two shots on target. But the goal, there was nothing you could blame on Salikov's side, in my opinion. Leicester, however, was a totally different story. He was busy all night. Because Spartak was so tight, so compact, and actually very good defensively in a nice change, uh, he didn't face a huge amount of saves. Uh, he wasn't forced to make a huge amount of saves, only two or three on the night. But he just looked very commanding. He, he looked comfortable, I think is probably the easiest thing to say. And of course, did save a Jamie Vardy penalty, which was maybe because the penalty was terrible, not just Sanya Selikov's save, but always credit the goalkeeper. Um, David, are you glad to see Spartak take a different approach instead of just trying to match up Leicester, trying to match up Zenit when they're clearly nowhere near as good? Um, well, I think it's proven that he's not insane. Because uh, what's the old <laughs> adage? You know, if you keep trying the same thing, it, you know, I, I can't remember. I'm not very being very poetic here. It's early and I've not long been up. But the old adage, you know, you try the same thing over and over again, it's the definition of insanity. Um, <laughs> so at least he changed something. Um, thank God Raskazov didn't play. It was a lineup that actually you could sort of be half proud of. Um, you know, there were no players there who. Okay, that's maybe a bit too far. But they're, you know, unlike Raskazov or Lomovitsky, who are two passengers of the limit, um, you know, you've got. There was not maybe any players in there who were thought he's been there just for the limit. Um, you know, Ignatov. He's young and he's been impressing, so it's uh, it was fine to see him start. And you know they they did what they they did really well. Um, you know after the uh, not the heartbreak, but the enemy of losing, having been two 0 up at home against Leicester. Um, you know they did well to to shut them out. Um, you know, all I saw, I saw very brief glimpses of the game, and in the glimpses that I saw, I saw Sumari 
bashed the crossbar from about 40 yards out or however far out that was with a ridiculous shot. Um, and I saw Spartak's goal, um, which was just a very well-executed counter-attack. Um, you know, a point isn't hugely helpful, and obviously if they could have come away with the three, it would have been an, an unbelievable result. Obviously, Legia's form in the in the league uh, or in that table has has uh, sort of thrown a spanner in the works. But as I recall, even if they can if they can somehow come third, mm-hmm. they still go they'll still go into the <clears> conference <throat> league, uh, as I recall, or they have a chance of going conference league. So, um, you know, it was it was a good result for them. Pleased to see that they you know they changed something up. Uh, they got rid of some of the passengers who who've been in the team, um, and now we have to just hope they can go to Warsaw and, and get a result um, without seeing the table in front of me. I'm assuming a win in Warsaw would probably be enough to get in third place minimum. Yeah, well, Spartak are bottom of the group still with only four points, but are now still within three points of Napoli in first because of. Like you said, the the results in it. Legia won both their first two games, but then their form kind of nosedived since then. They've lost 4-1 to Napoli and 3-0 to Napoli as well, yet Spartak managed to get three points in Napoli. So it's very much still alive, the group now. Um, and if they, it's probably going to go down to that one game with Legia uh, Legia have got Leicester away, if I remember rightly. They, I'm sure they played at home. They would play both the first, they play Leicester at home in the first half of the group. So it's it's very much in Spartak's hands. And I agree, it was nice to see, like you said, the passengers taken out of the Spartak side. As every now and again, you see Spartak and you think, oh, they'll have a decent first team, and then they'll get one injury, and then you're stuck with like a Yeshinka or a Raskasov or a Kutupov in defence because of Maslov's injury. Or because of injuries further up the pitch, then Georgi Melkadza might get a start or Alexander Lomovitsky might get a start. And it's just, these players are probably fine domestically the weekend after a European match. But you really don't want any of them starting when you're playing Leicester away with this talent that they have throughout the side. So it was good to see Maximiliano Corfrier play very well. Um, he's been under fire a lot for Spartak this season, but as probably rightfully so, he's been a little bit out of his depth at times. But on the night, he was Spartak's best defender, in my opinion. I think it was 10 clearances, two blocks, two interceptions, two tackles. Leicester tried again that to take advantage of Spartak's right-hand side. A lot of their play was focused around recycling the ball up from through Tielemans, through Ayose Perez, who would peel off onto the left, Bertrand getting out wide in in Inacho this time, peeling off in behind, because Patson Daka was pretty much anonymous, had a terrible game. And that was because Daka's game is all in behind. It's all balls over the top, playing on the shoulder, playing off the last man. But Spartak was so deep in re- in response to the way that they were open at the match of the Otkritia that Daka just had nowhere to go. Bertrand was poor, Inianacho was stifled, and Moses and Corfrier down that right-hand side were both really solid in defence and Spartak's best outlet in attack. Uh, Moses' goal was 
probably fortuitous. Um, don't get me wrong, it was a nice move. The cross from Ignatov was excellent, the way that he got to the byline, picked his man, and it was a perfect whipped cross just far away from the defenders. It's really difficult to, to deal with when they're alert. But the lucky side of it is that Leicester's defence was just not alert whatsoever. Uh, Sumare just let him, and Namate just let him through. Uh, Soyuncu and Evans were nowhere near. It was, it was all over the place. It was weird to see that Moses was just allowed to run from midway in his own half, right to the edge of the Leicester, 10 yards or so of the goal. Totally unmarked. Good move, good header, really nice cross, but it was certainly unavoidable from Leicester. And I think that was maybe lack of concentration because they were in the ascendancy for the entirety of the game. That was Spartak's one and only shot on target. So they've only got themselves to blame and Spartak kept those concentration levels up for the most part. The goal again was a little bit disappointing. Um Amarte just totally free in the back in the in the back post, but it was a deflection onto him, so I'll I'll give Spartak a little bit of leeway on that because they've went to Leicester, got a result, and have put themselves into a position where they can hopefully go to Legia and get third place in the group, move into the next stage of the competition, even if it is dropping down to the conference league, which would be an improvement. Uh, as a quick summary. The guys at Swiss Football Data, and that's at Swiss Foot Data on Twitter, go through a ranking of coefficients. Um, and they look at the coefficients on a weekly basis and the country rankings analyze it country via country. Um, in terms of Russia, they, we've had a plus 0.4 to the coefficients as a result of Locos away draw and Spartak's away draw. Um, but they analyse that when does the nightmare end? Because there was no victory again this week. Senate lost 2-4 against Juve and Loco and Spartak with draws. The top 11 still in danger and things look even more grim for next season. Now, in isolation, again, these results away from home aren't necessarily the worst. Juve are playing, uh, Zenit are playing Juve, Loco and Spartak away from home got points in difficult games. The problem is, is when you don't take it outside of isolation and... You only claimed 0.4 points this week, gained 0.4 points this week, which is 20th in the biggest gainers of the week list. Behind Slovakia, Cyprus, Croatia, Switzerland, Czech Republic, Belgium, Turkey, Scotland, Azerbaijan, Israel. They all gained more points this week in terms of the coefficients. It's not that long ago when we were looking at Russia actually catching up to France in fifth. France are now on 50 coefficient points. Russia are way back now. They're back in 32. And the, the why this is a problem is when you look at the access list for 2023-24 season, the current access list is that Russia are in 10th in the coefficients, dropped behind Scotland, Austria, this and Netherlands this season in the last since the last one. That means that they're currently looking at having five teams the champion would go straight through the Champions League group stages and then teams <clears throat> two, three and four to the Champions League second qualifying round, Conference League third qualifying round and Conference League second qualifying round respectively and the Cup winner straight in the Europa League playoffs. Not necessarily terrible. Of course, if they were still sixth, they would have six teams with the Cup winners going straight into the group stages and first and second going straight into the group stages. 
of the relevant competitions. The problem is, is that if Russia drops any further, bearing in mind, like I said, Switzerland, Belgium, Serbia, Ukraine, Croatia, Czech Republic, Cyprus, Turkey, Greece have all gained this week. If they continue to gain in a week-by-week basis, Russia drops out of the top 10. When you drop out of the top 10, you no longer get a club automatically in the group stages. That's huge. If you drop out even further, drop down to the third, three places, and that's all it would take, three places, five points, you don't get anyone automatically in the Champions League playoffs anymore. It's only in the qualifiers. You don't get anyone in the Europa League playoffs anymore. Everyone would have to play from the qualifiers from the second round onwards, or third if they if you win the league. So this is seriously possible that Russia could drop from 10th to 13th. It's very close if you look at the coefficient tables. In 10th, Russia are on, as I said before, 32.08. Belgium are only on 29.2. Belgium gained on Russia this week again. The gap is getting bigger, is smaller and smaller. The gap to 11th place was minus 2.2 just this week. They've got the Belgium have got four teams remaining. Ukraine have got three teams remaining. Russia still only got three as well. Austria have got four teams remaining. It's um, it's worrying in terms of the coefficient points. And if and even though, like I say again, this was not the worst week in terms of results in isolation, but again, it's a week without a victory. It's a week where you see individual errors are really costing Russian sides. And if it continues like this, the current projection is that Russia could be 13th or 14th by the end of the season, which is pretty much disastrous in terms of the coefficients. Um, so again, that's is, is just a quick summary I wanted to go through, and that's from the, the fellas at Swiss Football Data. I really do recommend it. They don't just look at the tables and put them online. Their analysis is really in-depth, and it's long-term analytics as well, looking at the from a purely statistical point of view of the trends of the where each country go from a result to result basis. Um, highly recommend it. But <clears throat> we do have some international action coming up soon. We, myself and Richard, explored our thoughts on the massive 41-man squad for Valeri Carpen last week. That has now been reduced to 30 with 11 emissions from the full initial squad, but before quickly looking through the initial, uh, the omissions, David, what do you think of the 41-man squad? Um, depending on how that question, what do I think of the composition or what do I think of the prospect of it? Um, the prospect of a 41-man squad or reality of it is you know, it's ridiculous. Um, you know, we... We like that Carpin is giving chances to players who are getting in based on form or younger players, you know, players who actually deserve to be there. But he's he's taken that prop that we've given him and uh, gone way too far with it. Um, you know, 41 players is just frankly ridiculous. Like if you had a national pool uh, of players who could or you know have a chance of getting in the squad... You're probably looking at nothing more than like sixty or seventy players, probably at most, um, with realistic chances of currently getting in the squad. Um, and as we, as we've said already, you know the fact that they've currently called up fifty four in total um, is just outrageous. Um, you know he's got ten different goalkeepers. Um, 
and I, I just don't see the point. You know, he names his squad so early, right? Last week, so still a week before technically that he needs to. And before they've even had a chance to get together and start training, uh, he cuts uh, however many players from the squad. 11 players. It's yes. just pointless. Like, If you're going to name the big squad, the purpose of it when these things usually happen, like not necessarily to 41, but sometimes national teams do name slightly larger squads with a couple of extra players because the coaches want to observe those players right in training and see mm-hmm. how they get on. Um, I just don't see the point in naming 41 players only for a week later to just name 30 of them. Um, just wait a week and then name the 30. It's like maybe he's done it for, for morale. You know, he's he wants to say to players like Chernikov and Meredishvili or whoever, you know, that you know you're in our thoughts. But you don't actually have to name them in the squad. You can you can you could actually just say, you know, we're keeping an eye. Just send them a message saying that you know you're doing really well. You're not in the squad this time, but we're keeping an eye on you. Whatever. Um, yeah, very very peculiar. Uh, the squad itself composition, I was, you know, I was fairly happy with. You know, there was a lot of players there who deserved to be there uh, on form. Um, obviously, a lot of those have since been cut, but they're still, you know, the squad is still decent on paper, and you know, it's it's some big fixtures um, that they've got to go and have. You know, they have to beat Cyprus, assuming that Croatia are going to go and win their their game uh, against. I think Malta is it? I forget. Um, and then they're going to have to. You know, the big, the big game is the Croatia game. And uh, as I recall, they because of Croatia's result in Slovakia, um, a draw should be enough. Um, and that's that's the huge game. The only thing I was a bit disappointed was, was that um, he stuck with Agalarov. Oh no, he dropped Agalarov, who's obviously still on mm-hmm. field top scorer. You know whether he was just not impressed with him. During the last training camp, obviously he, Aguilarov didn't play in either of those two last fixtures. But um, you know, Smolov's been injured and barely playing. Uh, Zabalotny's been on average form, and I can't even remember who the other striker is. Who is it? Let me pull up the list. Segev. Okay, Segev. You know, Segev's something different. So I can't be too upset with that. But he's also untested. Like. He he's had Agalarov in the squad and dropped him from previous time, so he's obviously decided. Okay, because I, I seem to recall he called him up and he said, you know, we need to see what he's like in training. So maybe they weren't impressed with him enough in training. The 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 comment I do remember him saying was that he really liked how he puts himself about. He like has some of the most. Um, some of the highest you know, attacking duels of anyone in the RPL. Like he just will chuck himself at anything. Um, so yeah, the squad was good. Other than that, I, I thought Ergolarov deserved, you know, he, he's keeping up his goal-scoring run. Why shouldn't he be in? Um, but yeah, uh, the squad's fine, but the the manner of him doing it, you know, I can still look at, look past you could yourselves and you know, that maze a little bit, I suppose. Um when you when the squad is largely made up of other players who I who I do like, so yeah, yeah, I I don't want to sit too long on 
last week uh, on, on the composition itself because I did look over that last week, but it was 11 players dropped, uh, as you mentioned, David. That was includes Gamida Galarov. Uh, most of the players who were dropped were ten, uh, tended to be youngsters. Um, Adamov, Klugovoy, Agalarov uh, were include, included in that. Konstantin Chukavin, uh, Alexander Chernikov, and others. Most, most of them have actually dropped down to the under-21 squad. Now, I'll finish off. I just wanted to quickly explore that it has actually been dropped down, but by reading out a quick response to the original tweet from at Team Russia, Sponaya Lossi. It's one of the fa- one of the fans says, Gadia Galaro Suka, which is, I mean, yeah. I'll, I'll not get into that, but absolutely, where the hell is Galarov? Why is he not in that squad? I don't care if other people think that maybe Smolov is a better option or Zabolotny or Sergeyev right now. Obviously, he likes his big men up top. Sobolev's been a little bit out of form of late. Sergeyev could be an option alongside Zabolotny for that target man to try and look to replace Zuba. But why not call up Bagalarov? He's got four goalkeepers in there. He's not going to play all four goalkeepers. Drop a keeper, bring in Agalarov, get him in the training, get him in the matches, even just late on. Get him playing. The form that he's in right now, he 100% deserves it. It's ridiculous that he's not there. So I agree, whoever that was, in the in the, in the replies to the initial tweet of the squad. Where is Agalarov? Um, but I'll, I just wanted to quickly explore that before finishing off on the RPL. So... Last weekend, there was a full fixture list of regular RPL matches uh, in round 13. I'll quickly review all of the results before moving on to yourself, David, to summarise a few of them. Uh, Zenit beat Dinamo 4-1 in the top of the table clash. Uh, Rubin won Siska nil. Spartak won Rostov 1. Krasnodar nil. Krulia won. And that was just after... um, and since then, sorry, Igor Osinkin has been voted by the fans and by the public as the RPL Manager of the Month for October. Uh, Nizhny won Loco 2, Ufa won Akhmat 0, Arsenal won Sochi 2, and Himki 0, Ural 0. So, David, do you want to start with Rubin, Siska? Yeah, a rare bright note for Rubin of late. Um, first win in, in five games. Um, still without Despot. Despot's out injured, so Onuka's been playing uh, as the striker. Uh, we were also without Aremovic last week, which I was very confused when I saw the lineup. I didn't know how we were going. I thought originally that Bakaya was going to be playing right wing, uh, but we ended up with Dreyer was... Uh, no, he was playing centrally. Haksabanovic, I think, was in centre mid alongside Huang Inbom. Abulgor was centre-half alongside Talbi. And then Bakayev, uh was right wing Drea Center and Karaskelia on the left. Um yeah, it was it was a it was an e- very even game. Um I think percentage wise and shot wise it was it was almost exactly even. Uh, both teams had had chances. Um nothing there was nothing hugely clear cut um but it was certainly an improved performance from from us. Um and you know we we fought on hard and we got we got a very late winner um, from Kostikov, you know, in a bit of a... Gets a lot of stick because he's a, he's an average player who can sort of fill in averagely in a lot of positions. Um, but he came on and uh, it was a really, nutty, really fantastic cross from Haksimovic. 
um, which oh, oh Costa Cavazzo was just run onto it and smash it in with his head, which he did. Um, so yeah, it was it was good to finally get another win, uh, get moving up the table. Um, still, still a lot to do. Um, I'm very pleased that Shatov's back in training. Uh, we've really missed him. I think personally, his creativity. Just having him in the team allows Huang to play in a slightly freer role. Um, because at the moment, Huang's being forced to be sort of the conduit between defence and attack, as well as the creator in attack. So he's got to carry the ball out and then be the creator in the advanced section of the field. Really, we'd like him to be the, the conduit and Shatov to be the one higher up creating the chances. Um, so yeah, I'm hoping that he can get back in the team soon. But uh, yeah, an important win. And we've, we've got a tough game against Rostov this weekend. Who are sort of on shaky. You, you can't really predict what Rostov are going to do at the moment. You know, and in general, they're on terrible form this season. But they look like they they could throw up some some surprise results. So, And we've got a historically poor record there. So I'm hoping we can get something. But very pleased to get a win. Yeah, much needed after that long run of... Poor form. I kept an eye on Arsenal uh, Sochi. Again, I wanted to focus on both of these sides. I wanted, I've been trying to focus a little bit on Arsenal's game, as I've mentioned since, <clears throat> excuse me, um, Mia Dragbosevic came into the club. Um, this is actually, they actually lost again. Um, Kings Kangwa was probably Arsenal's man of the match. Despite the 2-1 loss, he was really good in the middle, completed more touches and more passes than Kostadinov and Chaushish combined, uh, dictated things in the middle when Arsenal were actually on the ball and they dominated possession This against Sochi, which you haven't seen as much for Sochi against Sochi this season. Uh, he got an assist with a nice, a really nice cross into Evans Kangwa, who somehow won a header. Uh, probably the first time I've ever seen Evans Kangwa win, win a header, but it was just another one of those nice little goals where you see like a, a wing backs combine that sort of thing where it was good to see two brothers combining to 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 get Arsenal back in the game. Uh that was at 1-1. Sochi their first goal literally 2 minutes into the game was a absolutely wonderful football. It was proper what you would expect of Sochi where they progress at pace playing real fast pace one touch football. Um Naboa Got the assist for Casiera to score again, who's been in excellent form this season, Casiera in general. I think that's six goals in and assists in seven games for Sochi. Um but although I did praise Kangwa for the rest of his game, he started a little bit slow. It was actually when Sochi were progressing with the ball, I think it was uh, some nice uh, link up play from Prok and Magasov and Jarzinho on the right hand side. Before Noboa was released through the middle to run on his own. Um, he was level with Kings Kangwa, and Kings just didn't track the runner, didn't see the danger. So he's obviously still young, a little bit to learn there. And Noboa, obviously, miles ahead of most people on most pitches that he plays on, read the game really well and got, got the assist for Casiera. And then Casiera finished the scoring late on with another goal. A real solid Sochi performance and while I don't like how the club was founded in the first place, obviously the franchise move of shifting Dinamo St. Petersburg down south 
you just can't help but watch and appreciate some of the football that they play with the tools that they have at their disposable. Still third in the league, in, in got were in played in European football for the first time in the history of the season, of course, earlier on in the season. Um, and even then, missing some key players. Uh, Dimitri Vorobyov has been out for quite some time injured. Uh, Marko Drukancic has also been out quite a bit injured. Um, Soslan Zhenaev, the first-choice goalkeeper, was missing at the weekend, missing again today. Uh, Nikolai Zabolotny's been deputising for him. And in spite of that, just playing really good stuff and have found in Casiera what they've desperately needed for the last couple of seasons, so far anyway, early on, is that that, that real clinical player who's doesn't get involved too much in the game, but is ready to strike when he needs to be. He's always finding space in the box. He's really nice at ghosting in behind, really good at that. Not necessarily the best finisher, but his movement gets him there to where he doesn't need a, need to force himself to put it like top bins or something or find a corner because his movement's so good. It, it, really, really nice to watch him ghosting in behind. Uh, David, what else caught your eye? Cross the dark earlier? I know you're you quite like a surprise. Yeah, so I watched that game. Uh, it was on at the same time as Loco Nizhny, which uh, I was trying to keep an eye on both. Um, I mean, main thing to notice was another error in defence for the for the goal. Um, I don't know what Sergei Petrov was doing, to be honest. Um, but it, it was all his fault. <laughs> uh, Safanov took a short goal kick. Petrov played it straight back to Safanov. Safanov gave it straight back to Petrov again. Um, and Petrov decided, no, you can have it back against Safanov, but scuffed his passes completely. I, I just don't know why he wouldn't take the ball and move it forward. Um, he had room the first time to take it on. The second time, the opposition player was a bit closer, but there still was an out ball uh, to someone on the right wing. And he didn't take it, and and they had a clearly had a tap in because of it. Saveli scored again. He's been on uh, a little streak of form recently, uh, scoring quite a few goals. Uh, then after that, it was just uh, one way traffic from from uh, Krasnodar, but they they couldn't break through. Um, they had some good chances, combinations, some good saves, and some just bad misses. Um, Krilia could have killed the game late on as well. Uh, they had a big counter, I remember. Um, very late on through Pinyaev and I think it was Yezhov, maybe. Anyway, two of them went away and uh, they ballsed it up. Pinyaev played actually a, a very good ball across. Uh, just turned 17, by the way. It feels, feels like yesterday we were talking about him as like a 14 or 15-year-old who was like going viral. Um, but yeah, he, he played a great <laughs> ball across and uh, the Kredia attacker who was going through, I think it was Yezhov, but... Uh, he, he messed up. He, he should have killed the game there. But, um, you know, Kredi have been on good form. They're, they're up in mid-table. Uh, they're above both Spartak and Ruben at the moment, I believe. Um, so going well. And Krasnodar, so hard to predict of late. You know, they've some weeks they, you think, wow, they're really starting to look look good again. Um, and other weeks they're like, oh, this is back to old Krasnodar again. But, uh, you know, they're still, t- you know, they're sixth. They're, they're having a much better season in general. Uh, you know, the addition of Cordova has helped, even though he's looked a bit shaky himself of late. Um, and still, obviously, in areas to improve greatly, obviously, the, the defence being one of them. Um, but doing better, just not very consistent at the moment at all. Obviously, they 
lost 3-0 in the cup to Kuban in the Krasnodar derby, uh, which uh, was embarrassing considering Kuban have been in one of the worst teams in the Feniel this season for the most part. Um, so yeah, they and that was a fairly strong team they put out too. Um, so yeah, Kredi are good, Krasnodar not so much. Um, they're, they're actually right next to each other in the table right now. Um, with Ruben Sandwich. Well, with Ruben just below them. Uh, yeah. Are there? Yeah. Oh. Uh, oh. Um, some, for whatever, I don't know what it is. Head to head? Yeah, because we, we drew with Karelia. Or did we? Did we lose to Karelia? I forget. We have played Karelia. Hmm. I have them here as 6th, 7th, and 8th for Ruben 7th. But this website is terrible. I'm on the, yeah, I'm on the RPO website, so I'm going <laughs> to trust what I've got. Right. Um, I'll finish off with Zenit Dynamo. I didn't want to mention any of the teams who played midweek in this section because we mentioned them earlier, but I think it would be remiss to not discuss the game that took place at the top of the table when first player second. Uh, Dynamo are now down to fifth, <laughs> such as how close everybody else who isn't Zenit is together up there. Um, yeah. Zenit again showing their absolute class. The South American contingent again, absolutely brilliant. This time without Douglas Santos. Uh, he, it was uh, Vyacheslav Karavayev f- uh, fulfilled his duties at left wing back. Uh, Santos, of course, was missing through injury. Uh, but Wendell. And Claudinho, absolutely brilliant again. Uh, both scored not the greatest of goals. Claudinho really taking advantage of a dreadful mistake by Ivan Odets. Uh, later on in the game, uh, Wendell just really nice finish into the bottom corner, taking advantage again of just the, the golfing class. Dinamo for most of the First 60 minutes, give or take, we're, we're, we're pretty good at matching Zenit up. It was just that one mistake early in the game that let Claudinho get in to score. Um, handball was given against Karavayev, who had a poor game in deputising for Santos. Daniel Fumin, real nice penalty again, one of the best penalty takers in Russia, levelled things up. And then Zuba came on, acted as a battering ram. I mean, I don't mean that to disparage Zuba at all. We, know, we all know what he's like when he's got his back to goal. It's just brilliant. And really, really just pushed pushed Dinamo back, occupied uh, Balbuena and Odets far more. Obviously, the, the, the team is them, they themselves were pushed back and, and gave Wendell in particular room to to make things happen. Um, Zuba scored just before the 70th minute to go now level on his own. Uh, out clear on his own as the highest goal scorer in RPL history. And then Yaroslav Rakitsky finished it off 4 1. Um, again, absolute golf and class. Dinamo were far better than Spartak, far more organised, disciplined, gave, gave a better shove of it, a better game of it. Um, Nicola Morrow was actually quite good in midfield uh, for Dinamo. Uh, Denis Makarov on the right was an important outlet in counter attacking. It was him who forced the handball from Karavaya for the penalty in the first place. But again, just certain aspects of Zenit's team are just way beyond anybody else's class at this level. And this one was a real spine of the team job. Of late, you've seen Santos and Sutomen out wide and, and Mostavoy 
uh, taken advantage of wide of players with this new formation, but it was Wendell Barrios and Claudinho who had a free role in in the middle who who, who dominated the game and got the victory for Zenit and again just a, a class of their own and that's why although we're only thirteen games into the season, Zenit are already five points clear of anybody else, and then that five points back, you've got a spate, a spate of five teams or so who were only within three points of each other. So I think anybody not betting on the league to be Zenith this year is 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 absolutely wild at this stage, barring unforeseen circumstances. But with that, we've come to the end of this week's podcast. Um, just to quickly finish, there's been some weird stories as a quick news roundup this week. Um Olga Smodskaya called Spartak a racist institution. Um, Spartak have then released a statement that they, and I quote, do not disregard the words of Smodskaya, but it is a serious accusation for which they will have to answer within the framework of the law. Yeah. <laughs> um, Smodskaya then f- attacked back, being like, why does it need that reaction? All I said that racism is bad. And it's it's just a little bit of a crazy one where it's twofold. Spartak potentially taking Olga Smotskaya to court is just a weird headline. And even weirder, actually agreeing with Olga Smotskaya, her actually talking sense for probably the first time since her involvement in Russian football. Um, for those who may not know, she was the former um, CEO of Lokomotiv and is pretty much widely hated by the entirety of the Lokomotiv fan base. Uh, secondly, this week, there was an interview on Championat with the Italian agent Marco Tribucci. Um, he was, don't know if he still is, but was Massimo Carrera's agent during his time at Spartak. Still is Roman Yeromyanka's agent and has worked uh, directly with Spartak and other clubs in Russia over the years. He claims that Spartak have been actively looking to replace Rui Vittoria. Now, it must be noted that every single word that comes out of his mouth in this interview needs to be taken with a huge pinch of salt, considering he is a football agent. Some of his clients are football managers. So, of course, he's going to be saying things like that because it benefits him. But just a little bit of an interesting tidbit is that he also claims that Roman Yeremyanka has been unfairly tret and deserves another chance in football in Russia. Uh I mean, one could say unfairly tret, the other could say ostracised for his own idiocy and what he did with the recreational drugs four years ago. But hey, that's another story. Um, But that's been it this week for the Russian Football News Podcast. If you do keep an eye on the RPL fixtures this weekend, we're currently at the time of recording. It's half-time in Arsenal versus Ufa. It's currently nil-nil. Elsewhere, Dinamo Krasnodar, Krilia Himki, Sochi Siska, Ural Zenit, Rostov Rubin, Akhmat Nizhny and Spartak Lokomotiv in another Moscow derby. But this has been the Russian Football News Podcast. Goodbye for now. Веди его, беги, точнее его удар. Но мяч берет в ноги решительный вратарь. Не напрасно футбольное поле самых ловких и смелых плечов. Здесь нужны тренировка и воля, быстрота, увлечение, расчет.